Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, well, hello everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today I'm really excited about the guests that we're gonna have, especially because I have three little ones, and you know, maybe you know, or more than maybe, if you have little ones too, probably you're using or you've heard about Baby Einstein. So Julie Clark, welcome on to the show today. Thank you so much, Alejandro. It's so nice to be here. I appreciate it. So your your journey is uh, is quite remarkable, but you know most of the founders that I that I interview they have like this background either on finance or they did some type of like sales. But your background was before you became an entrepreneur, you were a teacher. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yes, it's funny because I uh, I started out as a teacher, and actually my. My intro to teaching started with high school students, and I was a um, an English and art teacher. And after I got pregnant with my first baby, I had decided that I really wanted to leave teaching to be a stay-at-home mom. And when I did that, I realized that I was actually much more of a teacher as a mom than I had ever been um, as a as a teacher of kids that I had for you know 50 minutes a day. And so I realized at that time that stay-home parents, moms or dads, um, we have this tremendous responsibility to educate our kids from a very young age. And that became very clear to me once I became a mom. Got it. Got it. So so how did you get started with with baby Einstein? Like what was that? You know, obviously ideas take some time to incubate and it's not like an overnight thing. So, so how did everything start? Yeah. So I was staying home, as I said, with my daughter and she was an itty bitty baby. And what occurred to me in spending time with her was how few resources there were for me as a parent to expose her to the things that I really loved. And those were things that I had taught. So um, things like art and literature and poetry and these, these sorts of humanities that were important to me that I loved. And again, no one had found a way to expose the youngest people in the world to those really beautiful elements of our world. And I thought, wow, you know, if I have this baby and I can expose her to anything, I can expose her to, you know, cartoons or, you know, sort of ineffective 
not so beautiful kinds of media, or I could expose her to things like Mozart and Shakespeare and, and Bach. And why would I not expose her to those things? Again, you know, I, I, it occurred to me that every baby born is really a blank slate. So they're, they're essentially a sponge, right? And we as parents have the opportunity to put anything we want into that sponge. Why not put in these really beautiful elements of our world? And so I thought, okay, no one has done this yet. I looked around and I couldn't find anything. And um, I thought, okay, I can do that. I think that I know how to do that because I spend all my time with my baby. I know what she likes to look at and I know how to give that stuff to her. And I bet, I said to myself, I bet I could make some kind of a video that would give her exposure to these beautiful things like classical music. And that was really the inception of the whole idea. That's really cool. And and what was the business model? So that's the funny part, right? So because I was a teacher and again, you know, a mom staying home with her baby, I had absolutely no idea how to write a business plan. And I didn't. I, I, um, when I first came up with this idea, I essentially was just making something for my own daughter. I had no idea at the time that I was going to be creating something that would become one of the most recognized brands in, um, in children's media and in the whole baby space. So what I did is I, I went into my basement. I had borrowed some video equipment from a friend and shot those very first baby Einstein videos myself. So I knew again, what she liked to look at. I would take items like those things she liked to look at, which were things like stacking rings or the cat or, um, um, you know, toys that were interesting to her, put those on a table with black and white backgrounds, and then combine those video elements that she so enjoyed looking at with the kinds of things I wanted to expose her to. So the very first video was baby Einstein, which ultimately was called language nursery. And what that did was it exposed her to the sounds of nursery rhymes in a variety of languages. So languages like Spanish or um, um, Hebrew, Russian, um, and, and then my daughter was hearing these things. So she was hearing nursery rhymes in languages that were really beautiful and appropriate for her. And um, the business model in and of itself was literally that. It was, here is something that my baby likes to look at that exposes her to beautiful things. And ultimately, what I realized was that, of course, babies are babies. My baby wasn't the only one who would enjoy looking at this. So other babies must as well. And so then I started thinking about how I could get that into the hands of other parents in the world and see if their children did indeed like looking at those things. And it turns out they did. Got it. And so you mentioned that initially it was called language nursery. So did you do like any type of rebrand or into baby Einstein or how did that work? Yeah. So it's funny. My, my, um, my instinct was to call the company or the business or the very first video baby Einstein, because my thought was, of course, I'm taking a baby and I'm exposing her to things that will stimulate her brain and will help her to become a rounded citizen of the world, if you will, by exposing her to these things. And so the idea was, okay, well, Einstein, of course, was one of the 
most incredible brains um, that we've known in our world. And so it made sense to call this Baby Einstein. So the, the name actually of that first video was Baby Einstein. Ultimately, when I um, became more successful and began to create additional videos, I thought, okay, rather than um, having a separate name for each of these, let me call the whole brand Baby Einstein. And so the Baby Einstein name is what ultimately came to be my company. But when I started, the first video was first Baby Einstein, then Language Nursery. And then the second video was Baby Mozart, but it was under this Baby Einstein brand name. And then the third video was Baby Bach, again, under this Baby Einstein brand name. And so, um, yeah, so that's really how the branding came to be. Got it. So, I mean, one in one in three homes with babies have a baby Einstein. At least they they're playing it. I mean, in in my house, as I was mentioning, we we have it back and forth like all the time. So it's like <laughs> playing in my head probably right now. But I guess the uh, in terms of marketing tactics, uh, Julie, what did you use to gain traction? Because this, this became like a movement. Oh my gosh, it was my it was amazing. Um, so when I first was trying to launch the brand and get it into homes and get it in front of people, it occurred to me that I was my own customer. I was making something that I myself wanted. And so in a very practical sense, I thought, okay, where do I shop? And I looked at, um, really at the time, and you have to remember this was 20 years ago, there was no internet to speak of. There certainly was no, um, believe it or not, at the time I had no email. I mean, there was, this is a different world. It's quite remarkable when you think about how the world has changed in 20 years. So 20 years ago, I, um, decided to try to get my first video into a store brand called The Right Start, which was a specialty store. And this was, again, at a time when there were stores that existed called The Right Start, Zany Brainy, um, Imaginarium, a lot of these specialty baby and toy stores that sadly are, for the most part, out of business now that we live in a world that really you know, exists of, of organizations like Amazon and Walmart and Target, where most people do their shopping. But so I thought, okay, I will start in specialty stores. I went to a trade show. Um, the one that I went to was Toy Fair, which is at the Javits Center in New York every year. And I started just shopping that video, looking for a specialty retailer that would pick up this, this brand, which was very new. Again, at the time there were very few videos made for very young children. So um, there was Barney, there was Sesame Street, and there was Teletubbies. And now here I was with this very new brand called Baby Einstein. So I will tell you that the name itself spoke volumes to what it was. And parents absolutely fell in love with the name. And, you know, as, as you yourself, I'm sure as the parent of little kids would say, which parent in the world doesn't want a baby Einstein, right? Who doesn't want their baby <laughs> to be the baby considered very smart, very well stimulated, very educated. And so the name spoke volumes to what it was. And of course that helped to get the brand into homes. So once the right start agreed to try it out in stores, what they found was that it was flying off shelves. Parents loved it. They said, they said, oh my goodness, oh my gosh, baby Einstein, I must have that for my baby. And then 
the real magic behind the brand, of course, was that babies loved it. It was so new and it was so beautiful because babies were responding to Mozart. These were babies who didn't need to hear Barney, a purple dinosaur, with a voice that made parents want to, you know, scream. Um, So this was something that parents felt good about exposing their babies to and that their babies loved. And that was how it became a movement. A baby would be crying. Mom would pop in baby Mozart and the baby would stop crying. And that in and of itself was absolutely huge. Right. So I would say it was, you know, it was not just this great name and the fact that parents were looking for something very new and different and educational for their children. It was the fact that babies responded to it in such a beautiful way. Got it. And on the PR side, I mean, I was, I was very impressed. I mean, you were uh, on Oprah and, you know, multiple pictures with Oprah and, and then you were also mentioned by President Bush during the State of the Union address. I mean, with oh. your daughter next to you, I even watched that video. It was a, it was really unbelievable. And and I guess, you know, were you like like once this becomes like so big, I mean, did you have like other people helping you? Because in many instances, I see founders really like wanting to manage the process and and, you know, how the, the, the companies portrayed. So did you do it yourself or did you have people helping you with all of that? To be frank, I did it myself. And to be honest, I felt like I wasn't even doing, I wasn't even doing it, Alejandro. It was so crazy because baby Einstein is really an anomaly. I mean, it happened so quickly and so unexpectedly that as it was happening, I was sort of participating in it and it was almost a flurry of events, right? So I was um, featured in People magazine. That was the first real, um, uh, you know, sort of large media publication that wrote about baby Einstein. And this was just two videos in. But what had happened was a writer at People magazine had the video. Her child responded to it. And she said, oh, my gosh, I have to interview this woman. And so I got a call from People magazine and they said, we really want to do a story on you. And I said, oh, my gosh perfect. Then Parenting Magazine called. And, you know, then we were given an award for Best Video. And then we were given an award from Working Mother Magazine nominated Baby Einstein as sort of the the thing that every parent had to have. This was all without any kind of a PR um, firm behind us. These were people who were responding to what they saw, what they loved, what their children loved. And as you know, I mean, as a, as a parent of three, if your child loves something, you love it, right? <laughs> so, so it was, again, this incredible flurry of media that was happening in response to something that I had created. And I can tell you that, you know, five years into the company, as I had, you know, worked and I had created at that time... Um, nine videos and many books and many audio CDs. I was I was one of five people who worked at my company. There were five employees, yeah. and we were working out of my basement. I mean, this was it was so grassroots, and it was so um, it it was so natural and so 
beautiful, the way that it rolled out and evolved. And I was having so much fun because I was making things not only for my babies, but for babies around the world. And I was getting this response from parents that was overwhelming. And um, so it was just, it was truly, as I said, it was an anomaly. When I talk to people about the business and they ask me, tell me about your business plan, tell me about, you know, how you did this. And it's, I, I have to say, you know, I wish that I, I had the secret sauce. All I can say is that I made something that people wanted. It was completely new. And um, the response of the customer, who ultimately was the baby, was so true and pure that it was just incredible. So that's just that's just amazing. No, and they ask you like uh, maybe one that has not been you know familiar with your business or anything, and they ask you who is your customer, and you say babies. You know, it probably <laughs> their face. You know, <laughs> would have been yeah. really interesting to to watch. No, but but I guess right. uh, kind of like going to the uh, to the beginnings. No, so you go, you start into you know this this incredible business from your basement. How much how much capital did you invest it initially? Do you really want to know? Because it's really funny. Fifteen thousand dollars. That's amazing. <laughs> I know, That's right? Amazing. <laughs> because I did it all myself. You know. Well, right. I have to say, I didn't. I I have to first of all backtrack and say I did it with my husband. So my husband was my partner in all of this. And um, although the idea was mine, and I was the one creating the videos and the content for the children in the quote unquote back room in his office, in my house, in my basement was my husband who was, um, you know, sort of handling the POs and figuring out how we were going to ship, which was out of our garage and how we were going to, um, you know, handle, um, you know, billing and, and those sorts of things. And so, um, yeah, it was just crazy because it was teeny tiny. And you mentioned for me, of course, the most miraculous thing was being invited to participate as a guest at the state of the union address in 2009, gosh, I think it was 2008 or 2009 with president Bush talking about baby Einstein and a camera because <laughs> that's my daughter and I, I mean, it was insane. Um, amazing. yeah, it was so crazy. I was actually watching the news this morning. And of course there was, um, you know, George, George H. Bush was being honored and, and George W. was speaking about him at the funeral. And I was so touched because it was such an incredible event in my life and such an honor to be a part of something that was so great. It was yeah. very, very incredible. And did you, um, so, so, okay. So 15,000 to create this unbelievable thing. So did you raise any outside investment or, or that was it? Was it, you know, the reality is we just, we continued to create product out of our operating cash flow. We never took a penny from anyone, which was, I mean, as you know, it, insane, right? Yeah. We never had to raise money. It was beautiful because we never had to answer to anyone, right? I mean, yeah. it was just us. And so I was able to make things that were so pure, that came from my heart as a mom and as a creator of something that was for children. It was really beautiful. And so ultimately, when I sold the company to Disney, it was very different because now, as I was continuing to work now for Disney and create products under a 
under an agreement that I had with them to continue to participate for a few years, um, it was different right now. Suddenly I had to explain myself. This is why I think I should make this next video. And then there were people on the other side saying, well, we think you should do it differently. And that was really strange for me. Um, I can't imagine. I can't imagine, but I guess, I guess before we go into that, I want to ask you on what you were uh, pointing to before, which is really remarkable. So the revenues grew very quickly. They, how, how, what were the revenues right before the actual acquisition? We did about $23 million in sales. Um, and that was five years in. And the really, of course, the part that everybody is just amazed by is that, again, that was with five employees in a company that I ran, you know, from my basement and shipped out of my garage. It was wow. crazy. So, and yeah, how, so, crazy. so I guess five employees. So, so how were you able to really keep such a lean operation? I mean, is there like, what was that culture like, uh, Julie? Oh, it was amazing. So, um, I worked with my husband, of course. Um, I was the quote unquote CEO, but God knows I was, I was really sort of mommy in chief. <laughs> I was working right. again at home with my babies <laughs> there. Um, but, uh, the culture was beautiful. I had my husband working with me, my, my VP of sales and international sales lived five doors down the street from me. So he would walk to work every day and come sit in my basement. (laughs) And uh, the woman who handled our customer service was a neighbor as well. She lives a few blocks away. And um, then we had another woman who kind of, again, sort of helped with shipping and picking and packing. But uh, what's what's very difficult for people who are younger to understand is it was a different world. This yeah. is where people would order off of our website. There was no Amazon. There were no other places to really order the product from. You could eventually, five years in, you could purchase the product at Costco and Walmart. Um, and those sales happened as a result of those organizations coming to us and saying, Hi, you know, I'm with Walmart. We're really interested in carrying your product in the store. I mean, <laughs> 20 years ago, it was a different world, you know, so wow. that's how those things happened. And so our culture was tiny. It was beautiful. The people I worked with are still great friends. In fact, um, a couple work with me in my new company that I've got going now. And yeah. um, it's just, it, it, you know, it's difficult to really explain that culture in relation to how things work today, but it was small, it was simple. And, um, you know, I would, I would literally like kind of go decide what video I was going to make next. I would work with a consultant and a, a contractor to make that video. I would work with another contractor to produce the music that went on that video. And that was all done, you know, again, with contractors who weren't employees. That's fantastic. And and were you always, uh, Julie? Did you were you always really planning to sell the business, or what was the trigger? Yeah, you know, I would say the trigger was what we found was that five years in, with this incredible success that we had, we began recognizing that there were other people who wanted to get into this space. We had created a space that was completely empty. And so we were the only ones doing this. And with our tremendous success, what we recognized five years in is that, or really four years in, was that um, if we didn't grow, 
if we didn't actually step it up and add another 50 people to our organization and begin to produce videos at a much quicker pace and begin to create music and toys and, you know, really expand the brand that we were going to get crushed, that we were going to see all of a sudden an organization like Disney or Viacom or Nickelodeon or any of the, at that time, um, real big people in the space of children and media come in and wipe us out because they were huge organizations. And so we got to a place where we said, my husband and I sort of looked at each other and said, do we want to be an organization with a hundred employees? And the answer was no. We're, we're not those people. We're small entrepreneurs. We like to control what we do. We like to be personally involved and engaged. And we did not see ourselves as people who wanted to start an organization like that. So it was literally sell to someone who could scale or yeah. try to scale it ourselves. And we didn't want to try to scale it ourselves. Um, and because the whole thing was such a beautiful, amazing sort of dream that had come true, um, we said, let's get out. Let's do what we really, as, as human beings and parents who are very committed and devoted to our children would love to do, which is let's sell this for more money. Let's face it. I was a teacher. I was making $30,000 a year as a teacher. This was more money than I had ever anticipated seeing in my life. And, um, while, you know, and, and we can talk more about this, but while, um, the valuation 20 years ago of a company was not nearly what it is today when you don't, you know, see multiples of 10 times, 20 times, 30 times sales, it was still so much more money than we ever thought we would see in our lives. And so we said, okay, this is it. Let's, let's take a look and see how we might, um, sell this to somebody who could really scale this. And we found that. And what was that? And what was that process, Julie? So once you uh, spoke with your husband and you guys realized that, you know, you were small entrepreneurs like you, like you mentioned earlier, like how, how was that process until you actually, you know, closed the transaction? I mean, did you hire a banker or, or what was the process? Yeah. So, um, to backtrack a little bit, three years into baby Einstein's success, we were contacted by the Walt Disney company because they were interested in creating a book line, a baby Einstein book line. And so they had contacted us and said, would you be interested in licensing the baby Einstein name to, uh, Disney publishing Hyperion books, which is part of Disney publishing and writing books for the baby Einstein brand, which I was very excited to do. And so I had begun to write baby Einstein books. And in fact, had, um, five years in published over 50 baby Einstein books that were all bestsellers and were published around the world in various languages. So we had a wonderful relationship with Disney already. And so when we sat down again and decided that we were interested in offering the company for sale, the very first call that we made was to Disney. And we said, look, we're very interested in selling our company. Would you be interested in an acquisition? They said, yes. And so that was it. I mean, we never got another person involved. We didn't work with a uh, venture capital firm. We didn't work with any outside parties. It was just a deal that we did ourselves with Disney, who we already had a relationship with. Got it. Got it. And how, 
how aligned were you, for example, like say with your with your husband in terms of, of because I mean you had no investors, which is which is amazing. Right. So I guess how aligned were you with your husband in terms of of the value of the transaction? I mean, what was really driving that price for you guys? Yeah, well, we came up with a price, um, and again, our sales were close to $23 million that year. We came up with a price of $25 million. We made yeah. that offer to Disney, and they said yes. And, yeah. you know, to be frank, I my background is not in finance or numbers. And it, to me, that just was so much money, Alejandro. I I was so amazed and honored and thrilled that I had created something with that kind of a value that it didn't occur to me to say, let's get an outside investor involved. Let's see if we can get more than that. And then I will tell you, um, the year was 2001 and we got into this sort of negotiation, not negotiation, but into this relationship with Disney. And now they were looking at our books and they were doing their due diligence and, you know, making sure that this was a deal that they wanted to do. And as you well remember, as we all do in this country, 2001 was also the year that the Twin Towers fell and 9-11 happened. And that was a few months after we had begun this due diligence process with Disney. And when all of the, you know, the nightmare happened that involved 9-11, many companies, including Disney, came out and said, we're not doing any deals. We don't know what's going to happen with the economy. We don't know what's going to happen in the world. And no one was doing deals or acquiring companies. And Disney continued their situation with us. They continued the deal with us. And so we were very happy. We didn't have any outside involvement with anyone else who could have complicated the deal because we were suddenly afraid that maybe this deal wasn't going to happen. And it did, which was beautiful. That's fantastic. And, and, and how long did it take from beginning to end, from the minute you told them 25 million to the minute mm-hmm. the deal was closed? What was the timeline? Oh, gosh, it was six months. Six it months. was fast. Yeah, it was quite fast. I mean, one thing that I can tell you, and I know that, you know, many of your listeners could be um, people involved in potential sales or acquisitions. And uh, one thing that I will say that was beautiful and that I can totally attribute to my husband is that everything was in order. Our books were beautiful. We had a local firm here in Colorado called EKSNH that does accounting. We had them in every month from the moment that we really recognized that we had a company. They came in monthly and did our books so that we were very clear. We were very honest and open. Our numbers were beautiful. Everything was in order. And that was something that was very, um, helpful for us as a company. So I would tell anyone who is um, a new business owner or a business owner looking to sell eventually or not, that having someone to do that for you, if you're not good at it yourself, is key. And um, it it was excellent. So due diligence is so important. And again, having someone who could do that for us was key and ideal, and it made the process beautiful. So. I agree. I agree with that, uh, Julie. I think that right from the beginning, having everything well organized is going to save, you know, a ton of headaches down the line. But yes. in this process, uh, Julie, I mean, the other day, for example, I was uh, 
speaking with a friend that he sold to a large uh, corporation for quite a big price. And, and they actually did this internally, too. I think that it was seven of them involved against 200 or 250 <laughs> of the other organization in their in their deal room. I mean, he said it was just like crazy. So right. in your guys' um, situation, was it just your yourself and your husband really driving this process? Or did you have any type of support from maybe like a contractor or someone else? No support. It was wow. just us. Yeah. And how it many was, people were you, you know, were probably like behind the transaction on the other, on the other party on Disney side? You know, you have to it, estimate? we never had a situation where we were sort of sitting in a room, us and them at a table because we had come up with a number and they had said yes. And so it wasn't, you know, sort of this back and forth situation. It was truly, uh, again, you know, I, I continue to call it an anomaly. It was just a very different situation. We had a great relationship with them already. We put a number on the table. They agreed to that number and there was no negotiation beyond that. Got it. And, and nothing like legacy, right, uh, Julie? Because I think that when you... <laughs> build a company, you, and obviously you're looking for, for the exit, but you know, I think who, who is coming in and, and ultimately their culture and, and, and what they can really leave behind for you to look back and, and be proud of is, is really remarkable. So, so Disney, I, I, I believe they grew the, the business by like over 200 million. Is that oh right? Oh my gosh. Yes. You know, that Disney machine is pretty incredible. And so, um, they did, they grew the company to close to, gosh, I don't know the numbers exactly. I want to say 300 million in two years. It was astounding. Um, and they also, of course, took the company into additional relationships with um, juvenile product manufacturers. So they began to work with um, an organization called Kids2, which produces things like exercisers and a lot of these baby things, right, that, that exist now, right, like play mats. And then they did a relationship with Hasbro and they were creating toys, baby Einstein toys. And so they took the brand so much further out than what we had created. So, you know, when I owned the company, we were really essentially a media brand. We were creating video and books and music. Disney then continued that sort of um, element of the brand. But then again, they branched so much further out into areas that we had not um, pursued, including some that, you know, I thought this is kind of silly. I mean, they they had baby Einstein branded toothpaste. I mean, it was, it was like, <laughs> wow. Like, I yeah. had no idea we were going to be in the toothpaste business. But <laughs> So, you know, at that point, I have to say, you know, I was only involved as a consultant because we'd done a cold sale to them. I mean, we we sold the company. I had no I had no additional interest in the company as a um, as an owner. Right. So I didn't own a piece anymore. I, I literally sold the whole thing outright. Got it. So there was no no vesting where you guys had to stay on for a couple of years or any of that. Well, actually, so I did stay on as a consultant and I was paid as a, as a consultant. Um, and so that continued for a couple of years, um, on a, it's sort of, then we had this crazy family situation where I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2004. Yeah. And so my whole life went upside down, as you can imagine. And, um, I pulled back from a lot of my, um, professional 
responsibilities at, at the, you know, which was fine and not a problem with um, Disney, of course. And, um, so that all happened and, um, got a little bit crazy. So, yeah, so that was, that was that. And I wanted to ask you uh, here, uh, Julie, I mean, you are a cancer survivor and, and I think that in many ways, you know, also, uh, I guess life and then also building a company is, is really about surviving. And, and what I wanted to ask you is, who is Julie Clark in moments of uncertainty? You know, whether that is the business or the personal side, like how do you deal with those moments? Oh boy. Um, well, I have to say that I am an optimist, right? So I have, um, I have been diagnosed with breast cancer on two occasions. The first time again, 2004 and, you know, had surgery, got through it, felt great and was doing well. And four years later was diagnosed a second time. And the second diagnosis was stage four breast cancer. And as you may know, as you may or may not know, there is no stage five. Stage four cancer is considered um, for many people to be a death sentence. And so uh, on a happy note, that was 10 years ago. I'm cancer free. I have um, been involved in clinical trials and many, many other um, types of treatments, including chemotherapy and surgery and all kinds of stuff. Um, But you know, because the diagnosis was stage four, and again, that's not considered something you're ever cured of, I consider myself cured. So I look at life in a very different way than many people do. I get up every single day with an enormous um, sense of gratitude, and that is for my life, it's for my children, it's for my health, and it's for this beautiful opportunity that I had to create something that made a difference in the lives of many, many families. So I continue to be involved in creating products that help children and help families to do well as, um, as family units. I continue to create products that I believe help children to thrive and to help parents do a great job parenting. And I consider that my legacy and also my responsibility that I have found something that I'm really good at and that I believe in and that makes a difference in the lives of other people. And so that I feel is my reason to be here. And when I look at my life that way and I look at my, um, my role in the world, I see myself as somebody who has made a difference and can continue to make a difference. And as long as I'm doing that, as long as I'm continuing to make a difference in the lives of other people, I think I'm going to be around. And so I, uh, I believe that, you know, looking at my life that way has helped me to stay here and to be here and to fight against this sort of dark place that came to me. And, and, you know, I just, I look at it as, okay, that was a dark time. And I still have some moments of fear and some moments of darkness as somebody who, you know, continues to go through cancer treatment. So every three weeks I continue to receive treatment as a patient, but I look at myself not as a survivor of cancer, but as an assassin of cancer. So I actually, um, I have a, a, a not a um, not a not a moment where I see myself as a survivor hanging onto a life raft, 
but as an assassin who fights against something. And I continue to fight. I continue to feel strong. And I think that being in business, um, I see myself in the same way. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, this is uh, truly remarkable, Julie. So thank you for sharing that uh, that experience. Um, the shifting gears a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit more about WeSchool? This is your latest uh, initiative, I believe. It is. So WeSchool is the way that I like to look at it. Is WeSchool is what comes before preschool, and We is We like tiny W E E. And the idea of WeSchool is that I give parents and caregivers everything that they need to feel confident as new parents to babies up to the age of three so that on a daily basis, parents can understand how to help their children be stimulated and grow, whether it's in a verbal sense, how do I help my child to to learn to talk? How do I understand where my child is developmentally in those first three years? And all of this is done through an app for parents. So if parents log into the app store and they go to WeSchool, they would find for free all the information that they need from a developmental standpoint in how to help their children really thrive in those first three years. And, you know, my passion has really become those first three years of a child's life because what we know as as people who study child development, what researchers would tell you is that the first three years are really the most important time in a in a child's life in terms of learning and stimulation, that the brain grows to 80% of its adult capacity in three years time. And that it's not rocket science, you know, giving your child what they need in those first three years is really not hard. It's only hard because you don't really know what to do. If you're not involved in child development, most parents don't know, gosh, you know, what do I do with my baby? at eight months. And so what WeSchool does is it helps you understand, here's what you can do today for an eight-month-old. So every single day, we give you a little piece of information, a little activity that you can do with your baby on that day. And you can do it at home and it doesn't require toys or books. It's something that you know might be like, sing this song with your baby or in the app itself, play this little piece of music to your baby and move your baby's hands in this way as you play this music for your baby. And it's completely free. And um, it's sort of a, it's sort of a gift that I feel that I've given to parents around the world. And um, we're pretty excited about it. So. And now, I mean, this is, this is the, um, so now you've been around the block a few times, Julie. Yes. And I guess, uh, what are some of those learnings that you're applying now with WeSchool that, that you wish you had known uh, where you were when you were building Baby Einstein? Um, well, I don't know if I could equate it to the things I'd known when I was starting Baby Einstein as much as I can say that um, what I learned in Baby Einstein and have tried to apply in WeSchool is that and this isn't a business thing as much as it is a personal thing. It's it's more that, you know, we are given a gift of a child and, um, you know, every child is a unique, beautiful opportunity. And it's like I said earlier, I mean, we can put anything we want into our baby. We can expose them to terrible things and even worse in ways we can expose them to nothing. 
And we have to help our children in those first three years when they have no understanding and they have no ability to expose themselves to things. We expose them to things. And um, again, I'm sorry that this isn't a business. It's not really a business answer. It's really an answer that comes from my heart, which is um, to say that we as a society and as, as human beings, and especially as parents, have a unique opportunity to enrich the lives of our children, especially in the first three years when they can't do anything for themselves and when it's completely our responsibility to expose them to the right things. And so all I can say is that, you know, again, this is our responsibility. And I believe that We School and Baby Einstein both have given parents help in in those kinds of um, exposures and and in helping parents. So I'm sorry, it's not really a business answer. It's well, more no, of a, no, no need, an answer no from the be, heart. <laughs> no need to be sorry at all, Julie. I mean, I didn't mention this to you, but my my three little ones, so two of them are identical twin girls. Oh my goodness. And and they were very premature uh, when they were when they were born. Now they're like one year, one year old. And I think that before they were born, it was like 80 percent chances of them uh, dying and 50 oh percent chances of, of potential brain damage if they were uh, to survive. So they stayed in the NICU for 180 days. I mean, it was like crazy journey. Oh, but but thank God, God you know, like they're like really huge miracle. They're really well today. But this comes to show that, Julie, even if, if you don't, if you're not thinking that, you know, you know, like you're saying, you no need to apologize because you made a huge difference, you know, at least for me. And I know that I need to get up to speed at least, you know, until they turn three. So thank you so much uh, for that, Julie. So I guess what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, it would be wonderful. The, a great way to reach me is through the weschool.com website. Um, we have a contact us form there. So weschool.com. And again, it's W-E-E school.com. Um, great way to reach me. And um, I would love to hear from anyone out there. I, I do... Um, you know, while I'm not a professional consultant and I don't charge anyone anything, I do hear from a number of people, in particular, I would say new parents and moms who have ideas like me. Um, and I would love to say that, you know, if I could do it, anyone can do it because I was that, I was that girl in the back of the classroom writing poetry. I was not your, um, typical from birth entrepreneur with a, you know, newspaper route at, at six. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was, um, I was a teacher and I'm a mom and those are the things that I'm really the most proud of. And if I can do it, I feel like anyone with commitment and tenacity with an idea, um, can do it. I would say, you know, make sure your idea is unique. If it doesn't exist in the marketplace already, the first thing to ask yourself is, does it not exist because no one wants it? And if that's not the answer, does it not exist because no one's done it yet? And if no one's done it yet, get out there, ask people if they think your idea is a good one. And if they do, start really thinking about, hmm, is this reasonable and realistic for me to do? Can I do it at a cost that I can afford? And again, for me, it was $15,000, which you know, it doesn't sound like a lot to most people when it comes to starting a business, but I can tell you it was a lot to me then because that was half of my annual salary when I was a teacher. And so $15,000 was a lot of money to me. And, um, but you know, if it's a good idea and, uh, and again, it's a unique idea, 
I think it's worth giving it a shot. So I would say that, um, again, you know, if I can do it, I think anyone can do it. So, well, Julie, it's been a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. It's been my honor as well. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.